So obviously, every year when Christmas comes around, uh, a lot of us have many traditions that we like to do. Uh, the holidays are filled with traditions many times. Uh, maybe it's traditions of the stuff you eat. Uh, like at my house, I love when Jennifer makes the little cake balls that you dip in the icing. Uh, we have hot chocolate, candy canes, and then here at Journey, we used to have Miriam Mary, Meisner's peanut brittle. Traditions of activities you may do, like in our family, we drive through Krug Park every year, we put our own lights up, and we set the tree up. There's certain movies that we have to watch. Uh, I watch Home Alone 1 and 2, the rest of my family watches 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, uh, but the only ones that count are the ones with the original boy in them. We also watch Griswold's Family Vacation, uh, that's always one. Frosty and Rudolph uh, are common ones. And then another tradition we have is the songs we sing. Today's worship service sounded a lot different than last week's service uh, because we're busting out the Christmas songs. We sing them once a year. There's about 15 of them, and we sing them like Silent Night and Joy to the World. So we're in this season of tradition, and normally when you come to church during this time of year, you expect to hear traditional stories. Uh, you expect to hear about the angels visiting and the miraculous conception. You, you expect to hear the baby in the manger and the shepherds in the field and the wise men visiting. But the challenge that I have every year is this is my 13th year of preaching through the Christmas narrative. And I always try to think of a unique way of doing it so I stay fresh and I never get lazy. Like we've used the book of Luke or we use the book of Matthew. We may look at faith, hope, and love and joy. We may preach the genealogy. We may preach Christological passages. But every year we try to find something different. And so the question is, what are we doing this year? Well, this year we're going to look at the birth narrative. Uh, that would be John 1, Matthew 1 and 2, Luke 1 and 2. And we're going to ask three questions of the birth narrative. We're going to ask the question, who are the people of God? What are the people of God doing? And why do they do what they're doing? And if you've been around the church long enough this year, you realize those are the same three questions that form the foundation of our church. Here at Journey Baptist Church, we say that the church is God's people doing God's purposes for God's praise. Why should you join a church? Why do churches exist? Because we're God's people doing God's purposes for God's praise. Now, as I've been reading through the Bible this year with the church, I've noticed that that summarizes a lot of the Bible. You, when you're reading it, the passages that tell us who we are as God's people. There's passages that tell us what we do as God's people. And a lot of the Bible tells us why we do it, which is to glorify God. So I want to take those three questions, and I want to lay them on the birth narratives, and I want to I see if, if, if all we had was John 1, Matthew 1 and 2, Luke 1 and 2, could we come to a logical conclusion of what is the church? Who are God's people? What are God's people doing and why do they do what they do? And we're going to see today and we're going to see next week as Calvin preaches and then Reverend Adam will be preaching in two weeks. We're going to see that in the birth narrative with the angels visiting and the wise men and the shepherds and Mary and Joseph and Zachariah and Elizabeth. We're going to see that God teaches us who God's people are, what God's people do, and why they do it. I want to be up front that I don't think these three questions are the primary focus of the text. The reason the birth narratives are in the Bible is to teach us that who came to earth? Jesus. The primary reason is for you to understand that God loved you so much and humanity failed so many times, he had to send his son to live on earth in order to do the life and be the person we could never be. That's the primary focus of the birth narratives is that God is coming in the flesh to do something for humanity that we didn't deserve and were incapable of doing. 
But since I've preached it 13 times, I'd like your permission this year to look at secondary and tertiary issues and look at who are these people in the story and what are they doing and why are they doing it. And you're going to see that the birth narrative is not an exception in the Bible. It's a continuation. That from Genesis 1 to Revelation 21, God's people, their identity is they belong to God and they're loved by God. Their purposes are to multiply God's people, to mature them and to magnify God. And everything God's people do is for one primary reason. That's to glorify God. If I do my job well today, we're going to be looking at His people. Who are the people of God in the birth narrative? Next week, Pastor Calvin will look at what are they doing, and Reverend Avon will be looking at why they do what they do. If I do my job well today, we're going to see that God's believing and blessed people are His children and citizens who are obedient recipients of God's Word. That's on the top of your bulletin today. That's my fortune cookie summary of my sermon. Really, if you memorize those 17 words, you can go to sleep this morning. I'm kidding. Uh, but those 17 words is what I'm going to try to justify by using the Bible in the minutes to come. And then the question I had as I had that summary statement is, so what? So what if that's true? Well, the so what is this. Because God's believing and blessed people belong and are beloved by God, we should behave godly. And that's what I'm going to show you, that the takeaway today is that we do belong to God, we are beloved by God, and we should behave in a godly fashion. Let's jump right into our first point, where we're going to look at three C's of who we are as God's people. God's people are created by God, they are beloved children of God, and they are citizens of God's kingdom. So three C words there. If you said, what is the identity of God's people in the birth narrative? I'm going to show you that within the birth narrative, John 1, Matthew 1 and 2, Luke 1 and 2, you can read and you can discover that God's people are created by him, they're children of his, and that they are citizens of his kingdom. Look with me at John chapter 1. And look at the, verse, the, three verse, the first three verses. We call this the prologue of the life of Jesus. A prologue is a fancy word meaning the, the material that comes before the main event or the material that leads into the story. It's kind of the background. And whether you know this or not, Jesus has a background before he is a baby in the manger. Before Jesus is in the flesh, in the manger with the wise men, Jesus is the eternal God who has existed forever and the creator of all things. This baby in a manger is a transition from his godly position he's always held. Let me show you this in John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through the Word, that being him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Now some of you are saying, well, that doesn't say Jesus, that says the Word. Well, down in verse 14 it says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed His glory. The glory as the one and only what? Son from the Father. So the Word is the Son of God, who we know to be none other than Jesus Christ Himself. So if we go back up to John 1 through 3, we can read it. Instead of saying the Word, let's say Jesus. In the beginning was Jesus. Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Jesus, and apart from Jesus, not one thing was created that has not been, that has been created. Now let me do some fancy connecting of the dots. All things were created by Jesus includes who? Us. 
Now, a lot of people will preach sermons around Christmas about how the Creator God is a baby in the flesh, and those are great sermons. But for our purposes this year, let's look at the implicit meaning. If Jesus is Creator God, and He has created all things that have always existed, that means if you exist, you are a product of His, what? Creation. Which means you are a creature, not a creator. We are created beings with a creator who made us. I, I have a starting point where God created me. God has no starting point. So we see here our first identity of being God's people. Who are God's people? Well, the one simple answer, they're his created beings. If you're part of God's people, you're admitting the humble position of what? I did not create myself. I am not my own master. I do not have the authority to get life from nothing, to bring something into existence that only belongs to Jesus. And that means me, myself, we are created by God, specifically Jesus. And here's the word I want you to think of. You are God's propri proprietary property. Proprietary. You know who created and had the idea and the concept of humans? God did. And because it's his idea and it's his creation, we belong to who? To him. The second thing we see in the birth narrative is that we see that God wants us to be his children. Look at verses 10 through 13 of the same chapter we were in. Jesus was in the world, and the world was created through him. Yet the world did not recognize Jesus. Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who received Jesus, it's very important, all who received Jesus, Jesus gave them the right to be what, church? To be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born, not of natural descent, or the will of the flesh, or the will of man, but the will of God. Who are God's people? What is our identity? We are created beings that through the reception of belief, we become children of God. That's who it is. If, if, you're, if you're not a child of God, you're not the people of God. The people of God have the only claim to being the children of God. And that claim is not a prideful, I was born into this, or I paid my way in, or I earned my way in. No, it says here that the reason we are children of God is because God had a will and a plan to make a way to getting a bunch of wretched sinners into his holy family. See, all I had to do was receive God's plan. Isn't that what it says here? But to all who receive Jesus. See, Jesus is the solution to our sin. Jesus is the problem, or the solution to our problem, of betraying God. See, I'm not a child of God because my parents are a child, or because I'm in some social economic class, or I make so much money, or I go to church even on Sundays. No, what makes me a child of God is that I heard the message of Jesus, and I received it in belief, and that was God's plan to redeem all of humanity. You have to believe that God loved you so much, He sent His Son to die for you. Who are the people of God? They're created by God. That's humbling. And they're children of God because God's plan to do something for us. That's also humbling. Amen? All of this in the birth narrative, this is the prologue, that John is telling you, hey, don't overlook who this baby is. This baby is the one who created your existence and created a path to God for you. Why does the church celebrate it every year? We would not exist without Jesus and we would be on our way to eternal damnation without him. Amen? 
There should give you a right to make Christmas more about Christ. Amen? We would not be here today, and we would have no hope today without Christ. And my third C is that we're citizens of God. Now, some of you are saying, I don't see this in John 1. You're right. We've got to go to Luke 1 for this one. So flip your Bible, Luke 1. The next four weeks, you're going to have to maybe buy three bookmarks and keep them in the three birth narratives because we're all going to be jumping around these next weeks. But go to Luke 1. I'll also say, uh, I bought the staff, these wonderful Gospel of Jesus. It is a chronological, they put all the Gospels together into one chronological story of Jesus. So they take the Bible passages and put them in order. Maybe something to pick up. But today we're looking at Luke 1, Luke 1. And you're going to be amazed, once again, this isn't the primary reason, Luke 1 verse 30. This isn't the primary reason for this passage, but there's definitely an in, implied meaning for you and I as God's people. This is Luke 1 when the angel visits Mary, and the angel says in verse 30, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him a throne of his father David. And his reign over the house of Jacob, now for, for us who didn't grow up in church, the house of Jacob could be easily translated the people of God. He will have reign over the people of God for what? For forever, and his kingdom will never end. Okay. Now many times this passage is preached on the kingship. You know, this baby in the manger is the king of the universe. He is the king of God's people, and we need to honor him and praise him and worship him. And wise men bring gifts, and shepherds are glorifying. But there's also an implied, more, um, implied meaning here. If Jesus is the king, then you and I are not. In the kingdom that we exist in, in God's kingdom, there is only one man who is going to be king. And it ain't going to be me, and it ain't going to be you. It says here that this baby named Jesus will have an eternal kingdom that will have no reign, and he will reign over God's people forever. So who are God's people? They are people who belong to God's kingdom. They are citizens of Jesus Christ. I'm not the king, and you're not the king. You know, when, it, when we talk about being a citizen, we're talking about what? That Jesus is our ruler. He's our authority. He's on the throne. He is reigning over us, which makes me a citizen, which makes me live under his authority, live to his pleasure, serve to his desires, praise his honor, fight for his, his passion and his plan, honor his law and edicts, and follow his commissions. Who are the people of God? They're citizens of the kingdom reigned by Jesus Christ. Amen? We're created by Jesus. We're children of God because of Jesus. And we exist in a kingdom where we're citizens, where Jesus is the king. He will be king forever. That's why Philippians 3.20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven as we eagerly await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Or Ephesians 2, where Paul says, So then, you and I are no longer foreigners and strangers, but we're fellow citizens with God's people, members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, which Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. So when I ask the question, who are God's people, out of the birth narrative, and I read the birth narrative about ten times, I made a nice little Excel spreadsheet of all my verses, I came to the conclusion that easily, when you read these birth narratives, you can come up with this. You're created, you're a child of God, and you're a citizen of God's kingdom. Now, we saw the asterisks, those who believe in Jesus. We saw that asterisk. 
And we know the asterisk of our citizenship is that Jesus is the promised ruler forever. But now the question becomes, so what? So what that I belong to God? So what that he's the king and I'm the citizen? So what that he's the father and I'm the child? What does it mean? Well, I watch Shark Tank a lot of times. And Shark Tank is a show where entrepreneurs come onto the show and they pitch their ideas. They, they present their company. Maybe they have an invention. Maybe they have a sandwich shop. Maybe they have cupcakes in a jar. Whatever they have, they present their idea. And they're pitching their company to a panel of investors. And they're hoping these investors become strategic partners in their business. They want money from these people and they want their wisdom. And a lot of times when these people are presenting, you can see how hard it is for them to give up any of their company. So someone will say, well, I'll give you so much money for so much percent in your company. And immediately you can see that they don't want to give it away. They'll say something like this, but I'm the one that thought of it. And I'm the one that created it. And I'm the one that launched the business. And I'm the one that's managed the business. It's my sweat and tears that are in this. And then they'll say something like this. It's almost as if this company is my baby. It's almost like this company's my child. I, I've brought this child in the world and I've raised this child. And, and now you want to take part of my child from me. This is my proprietary property. And you want some of it. And there's an emotional connection between what they have done and having to give it away. Now, if they have a hard time giving away a, a, a lollipop business to an investor, how much more does God struggle with watching his created humans walk away? How much more does it hurt God to watch his proprietary property, his intelligent design, his image of God that he's laid upon your life. How much more does it hurt him to watch such a special thing he thought of, he created, he brought into existence, he's managed and ran, he's provided for. How much more does it hurt God when we walk away? That's what I see here when I look at who we are as creatures of God. We belong to God. But here's the fascinating thing or the good news for you today. No matter how much you've betrayed God, no matter how much you've walked away from Him, no matter how much you've hurt Him, no matter how much rebellion is your, in your life, when you receive Jesus Christ, you go from being a betrayer of God, one who took His proprietary property away from Him, you go from being a betrayer of God to being the beloved of God. That's who the people of God are. We were the old betrayers back in the day. Using his creation to make ourselves happy. Or to make someone else happy. Or to make a false god happy. We were using what he created to make something other than him happy. We were betrayers of his proprietary property. And he sent his son to die for us so that when we receive Jesus Christ... We can go from being one of those old betrayers to being his beloved, to being his children, to being his citizens. A good king loves his people. A good king will die for his people. A good king will serve his people. Jennifer worked for a principal one time. He was a good principal. Someone says, well, how was he good principal? There was a lot of things he did that was good, but there was one time where I knew uh, without a shadow of a doubt, I would love for my kids to have him as my principal. A boy came to school one time and, and told Miss McMillan that the principal was at their house last night. 
not there to, to discipline them or to report. He was there to fix the window of their trailer. Because the boy said that the window was broken and the cold air was coming in. And his principal, without anyone knowing, went and fixed the window of the trailer. Why? Because that student was a citizen of his school's kingdom. And if humans can serve people that way, how much more can God serve you as his beloved child? Some of you are sitting there saying, I've always got the short end of the stick, Pastor. Born in the wrong family, lived in the wrong neighborhood, never get the breaks. I don't got anyone I can call to bail me out. Really, I got to take care of people. Well, let me tell you something. There's one thing that every human can have the same advantage on. That's receiving the good news of Jesus Christ. There is a beloved father who would love to make you his child today. But you got to become part of God's people. Because only God's people are the children of God. So that was our, my first point today. Is who are the people? We're created by Jesus. We're redeemed through Jesus, becoming children. And we're citizens of Jesus' kingdom. The second way you can look at this question out of the birth narrative is looking at what the people do. A lot of times your identity is not just formed by your name, it's also formed by what you're known for. Maybe you're a conservative, maybe you're a liberal, maybe you're a Chiefs fan, maybe you're this fan, maybe you grew up in this neighborhood, but the characteristics of our life also form the identity that people associate with us. So I also read through those same chapters, and I asked myself, what, what, what are these people known for? What's their heritage? What are they about? What are they passionate about? And I came up with an answer, and my answer is this, that this is the character of God's people. God's believing people are obedient recipients of God's deliverance. God's believing people, I put that word believing there because I don't want to confuse anyone today. Don't ever forget to be God's people, you must believe in Jesus. So God's believing people are obedient recipients of God's deliverance. Let me show you this this morning. I'm going to break these words down real easy. The first word is deliverance. How is it that God's people have the identity of being people of deliverance? Well, it started in the Old Testament. You have Noah and the what? Noah and the? Thank you. And the ark saves him from a? Flood. Thank you for all the 12 years and under answering me. Very good. The rest of you are asleep, all right? Hopefully you memorized that 17-word statement before you went to sleep. And then you get to what? You get to, to Abraham on the mountain. He's getting ready to, to have to sacrifice his son, but God gives him a message of deliverance. He looks up and he sees what in the thicket? He sees a, a ram. He's delivered from having to do this. Amen? You also have Abraham and Lot. They get to escape from what? Sodom and Gomorrah. You have the one that everyone knows. Moses walks into Egypt and he leads a big message of deliverance. He splits the Red Sea and out of Egypt comes God's people. A message of deliverance. See, being God's people means that we have a heritage of deliverance. And when you look at Matthew's genealogy, which I preached in 2020, if you'd like to go back and listen to it, in Matthew's genealogy, if you, if you turn to Matthew 1, you don't have to do it right now, Matthew lists all these names showing that Jesus is the son of Abraham, he's the son of David. He lists all these names. And in this genealogy, you have some kings that experienced some great deliverance. King Asa was going up against the Cushites. There was one million soldiers, 300 chariots against a half million Jews. And he says to God, Lord, there is no one besides you to help the mighty and those without strength. Help us, Lord God, for we depend on you. 
God goes on to deliver King Asa from the Cushites. It's our heritage of deliverance. We have another example. Jehoshaphat is going up against the Moabites and Ammonites in the Old Testament. And Jehoshaphat says this, We cry out to you, God, because of our distress, and you will hear and deliver us. For we are powerless before this vast number that comes to fight against us. Now listen to what God's people, the heritage we have. We do not know what to do, but we look to you, God. Jehoshaphat gets delivered from the Moabites and Ammonites, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Then you got King Hezekiah, probably my favorite story, Deliverance. Remember, he gets all the, uh, all the letters from the enemy. The guy was writing him all the letters and threats and stuff. It was, it was like a, a social, social persecution before Twitter, okay? They're sending messengers in, and he lays the letters of all the enemies that have written him. He lays the letters out before God, and he prays to God. And he says, God, listen closely, and hear and open your eyes and see. Now the Lord God, please save us from, his, uh, from the enemy's power so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are alone, God. See, Hezekiah gets delivered from the Assyrians. Asa from the Cushites. Jehoshaphat from the Ammonites and Moabites. Hezekiah from the Assyrians. See, we have a rich heritage in the genealogy of Jesus that we as a people group, God's people, we're people of deliverance. Our God wants to work for us. Our God wants to work with us. And our God ultimately wants to deliver us. And that's no different than the birth narrative. An angel shows up to Zechariah and he says what? Don't be afraid for I bring you good news. You know what Zechariah says about 50 verses later? God told me good news. You know what it is? He's sending salvation in the name of Jesus Christ. He shows up to Mary. What's he tell Mary? Mary, don't be afraid. For you will conceive a child, and you will give birth to a son, and you will name him what, church? You will name him Jesus. That name means God is salvation. Uh, he, he shows up to Joseph. Now, maybe Joseph didn't know his Hebrew as well, because he says to Joseph, she will give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. And then in the Bible it says, because he will save his people from their what? From their sins. The shepherds in Luke chapter 2, they're told what? Don't be afraid. I, the angel, am proclaiming good news of great joy for all people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you. See, we have a heritage as a people group all the way from Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and Asa and Hezekiah and Jehoshaphat. Then you get to the birth narrative and guess what? God is still giving good news. To Zechariah, to Mary, to Joseph, to the shepherds. And guess what? He gives you good news today also. That this child goes on to live a life you could never live and die a death you deserved. And in because of that, God can grant you salvation today. Who are we as the people of God? We're the messengers of good news. We're the ones that receive the message that God actually cares and that God actually wants to fix it. We have a heritage of deliverance we also have a heritage of being people of belief there's one thing about the people of god is they believe i mean we go through the same stories noah had to have a lot of belief to build a what to build an ark amen abraham had to have a lot of belief to go up on that mountain with his son he even tells his servants me and the boy are going up to worship and we shall return david had to have a lot of faith and belief in god to fight goliath moses had to have a lot of faith in god to stick that staff in the ground and split the red sea See, we, we only have a heritage of receiving good news. We also, we should be thankful, we also are those who actually believe God's good news. 
Zechariah and Elizabeth actually named their child what? They name him John. They believe when God says you shall do this. They believe that God can give her a baby even in her old age. Mary actually believes the good news that she will have a child. In Luke 154, Mary says that what God is doing in Jesus is he's remembering the promises that he gave Abraham and his descendants forever. You know what Simeon says? Simeon says, I have seen what I believed. I've seen the promise that you were going to give me. You have fulfilled your promise. I believe you fulfilled it. You may now take your servant home. Simeon waited his whole life to see the arrival of the Messiah. And then throughout the birth narrative, Matthew keeps reminding us that the leader will come out of Bethlehem, shall come a shepherd. The prophet of Isaiah prophesied that a virgin will give birth to a son. The genealogy from Abraham and David. See, God's people have lived well over, well over, let's just do some quick math here, probably 3,500 years. What's characterized the people of God is this. We believe the promises of God. If God says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. If God says that Elizabeth will have a child in old age, she will have a child. If Mary is going to have a baby as a virgin, she will have a baby. If John the Baptist will go on to live a great life, he will have a great life testifying. And if Jesus is the one who will go on to die for the sins of the world, guess what? He will die for the sins of the world 33 years later. We're people of the promises. We believe them. We trust them. And we believe them so much, we obey what God says. I mean, look with me. Just open to Luke 1. Oh, you're a priority there because I was there. But in Luke 1, when Zechariah is introduced to us in verse 6, Zacharias is described as a righteous man. He's living without blame according to all the commands and requirements of the Lord. When Joseph is introduced, he's introduced as a righteous man. Joseph has a dream that he shouldn't divorce Mary. The Bible says that when he wakes up, he does everything the angel instructed him to do. When the shepherds are done hearing the angel's praise, you know what the shepherds say? Let us go straight where? To Bethlehem to see what the Lord is doing. Mary and Joseph, after Jesus is born, they circumcise him. They give the offerings. They offer the purification offering. They offer the turtle doves. They offer Jesus to the Lord as the firstborn. See, not only do we believe the promises of God as God's people, but we're also, we're also obedient people to God. Not only is he our hope for the future, He's also our definition of the now. How I should live, how I should treat people, how I should think, how I should speak, how I should be a husband, how I should be a father, how I should be a neighbor. Not only is God the one we place our hope in in the future, he's also the right now of our lives. We see that Zechariah is a righteous man. He's living according to God's law. We see that Joseph is a righteous man. We see the shepherds do exactly what God told them to do. If you want to be part of the people of God, it's not just about trusting God for your future. It's about giving him the night now, the right now. It's living right now based on what he wants you to live. That's who the people are. Who are the people of God? I hope when people say, who are the people of Journey Baptist Church? They say, those are people of God's promises, and those are people of God's word. Those would be two great promises, amen? Those are people of God's promises. They're looking forward to the return of Jesus, 
And those are people of God's word. They're already living in the reality that he's Lord. And we live in the reality so much that a lot of people in the birth narrative call themselves a, a title or they use a, a verb. Zechariah is serving as a priest. He's a servant of God. Mary says in, in Luke 138, I am the Lord's servant. May it happen to me as God has asked. In Luke 148, she says, Thank you for having favor upon your servant. Simeon's praise. Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace. Anna, the prophetess in Luke chapter 2. She is serving God night and day. See, we believe God's promises. We obey God's word. And we consider ourselves to be servants of God. I couldn't think of another C word. It'd be really nice if I had a C. Because we're created, right? We're children. We're citizens. And by golly, we're servants in the kingdom. That's who the people of God are. And that's who you should be if you claim the name of Yahweh. That's who you should be if you claim the name of Jesus. You should be people who are believing God, obeying God, and trusting in God's deliverance as children, created people, and citizens of his kingdom. You know, it's really hard to separate belief from behavior. It's really hard. It's really hard. You know, Zechariah did not believe the promise that his wife would get pregnant first. And so he couldn't say a word until he did this. Zechariah didn't believe it. His behavior showed that he did not believe the promises. But you know what showed God that he really did, he finally believed him? Is he took a tablet to write the name of his child. And instead of writing Zechariah, which is what they expected, he wrote the name of John. And it says the minute that he showed his obedience of belief, his tongue was loosened and he began to what? Talk. See, it's hard to separate behavior from belief. You can sit here all day you want and tell me you believe in God. But the evidence or the genuineness of that belief will have to be shown in what? Behavior. It really is. I mean, it really is. When Joseph says, I'm going to believe what God told me, you know what the Bible says? The man did not have sexual relations with his wife until after she gave birth. There's a lot of lazy men in this room that would say, well, if she's already pregnant, we might as well go ahead and do the deed. Joseph was a righteous man. How do you know that? He held himself from sexual desires until the baby was born. It's hard to separate behavior from belief. How do we know the wise men were starting to believe in God's message? They traveled hundreds of miles to see a what in a manger? A baby. How do we know the shepherds believed the angels? Because they went straight to Bethlehem after the message. It's hard to separate behavior from belief. No, your behavior does not earn your belief or justify your belief in terms of earning your salvation but i'll be honest with you your behavior shows the evidence of it we're not perfect people but we should be reflecting god's holiness still it may not be a purpose reflection it may not be a perfect reflection but there should be some reflection see even the kings in the old testament i'll pick on hezekiah jehoshaphat and asa while they had moments of triumph of believing in god they also had moments of weakness where they trusted Egypt, or they trusted another power. See, God's people are not perfect, but God's people are transformed. And without the evidence of some transformation, we have to doubt whether you're a genuine believer of the Lord. You know, you don't want to walk away with this definition of Manasu. He's also in the genealogy. Listen to his life. He was 12 years old when he became a king. He reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. 
He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, imitating the detestable practices of the nations that the Lord had disposed before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had torn down. He reestablished false worship of Baal. He made Asherah poles, and he bowed and worshipped all the stars of the sky and served them. He built altars in the Lord's temple, saying, Jerusalem is where my name will remain forever. He built altars to all the stars in the sky in both the courtyards of the Lord's temple. He passed his sons through fire in Ben-Hamon Valley. He practiced witchcraft, deviation, sorcery, divination, sorcery, and consulted mediums and spiritualists. He did a huge amount of evil in the Lord's sight, angering God. See, the description there shows no evidence of transformation. See, some people want to say, my behavior can never be related back to my belief. That's, that's a pendulum swinging too far. If there's not an evidence that God's changed your life, it's because he never has. Okay? And that king in Jesus' genealogy showed us there are people who never show transformation, and the conclusion is they are not God's people. Because God's people believe his promises, they obey his words, and their servants in his kingdom. You know, I always tell my dog every time that he's the luckiest dog. I always tell our family, you know, Frankie really won the, the dog lottery. Uh, when, when we bought Frankie, we were informed that uh, our dog was left underneath a bridge with all his little sibling dogs. Uh, so they took the whole litter, they put him in a box, they stuck him under a bridge. So Frankie went from being a, a homeless dog underneath the bridge to getting to cuddle with Jennifer 10 hours a week under a blanket. All right? He goes from living underneath the bridge homeless to eating whatever he wants to eat, having six people to annoy and play with, bones and treats, and he gets to lay around 40 hours a week. Frankie truly won the dog lottery. He's blessed. You know why he's blessed? Because he belongs to us and he's beloved by us. You know, that's my last B word. If you've been following along, we belong to God. We should behave for God. We're beloved by God, right? But we're also blessed by God. I could make the funny joke that I hope he understands the gift he got by living in our house, and it actually affects the way he behaves, but he's a dog, so that logical reasoning probably isn't there. But folks, don't miss the point. You were a betrayer of God. You took his proprietary property, and you used it to rebel against him. Then he sent Jesus, and he died for you so that when you believe that, you go from betrayer to beloved, and you belong to him as his children. Because you believed his good news, and you desire to behave the way he wants you to behave. You know what's really sweet? Is that all of eternity, people will say how blessed we are. When I was reading Mary's praise, Mary said this in Luke chapter 1, I think verse 48. Mary said this, I think it could be said of every person of God. If we have the heritage of deliverance... We also have the heritage of appreciation. Listen to what Mary says as she reflects on what God has done in her life. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Well, why is Mary blessed, Pastor? Because the very next line says, Because the Mighty One has done great things for me, and His name is above every name. It is holy. Folks, who are the people of God? They're created by Him. They're children of him. They're citizens in his kingdom. They receive great news of deliverance. They believe that news. They obey that news. They're servants of that news. And for all of eternity, all of creation will look at you and I as born-again believers, and they will say, 
That's a blessed one. Not because of anything you did. Not because of any, anything that you accomplished on your own. No, you're a blessed one in all of eternity because of what God has done for you. Pray with me.